Uh, good morning, FBCO. Pastor Doug here. I'm not here this month. I, I can't wait to be back with you. I'll be preaching again in August, uh, but I want to welcome today our guest preacher, and he's really not that much of a guest. It's Aaron Wallings, our pa uh, Pastor Aaron Walling, who's been the Minister of Adult Education here uh, really for 30s and 40s primarily uh, for the last year and a half. And Aaron's got a great mind and a great heart, and he loves the Word. He always has great content, and hope you'll encourage him. I think this is the very first time for him to preach for us on a Sunday morning. But regardless, he's going to do a great job. You're going to enjoy him. Welcome this morning to FBCO uh, as he preaches for us, Aaron Walling. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open them. Is my mic on? Go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew 16. We'll be starting in verse 13. As you turn there, consider this. Life is full of questions. Some are obvious and can carry a lot of significance. Where am I going to live? What am I going to do for a living? Who am I going to marry? These questions carry a lot of impact in our life, but some others are rather insignificant. Questions like, what am I going to wear today? What will I listen to in the car this afternoon? What pew am I going to sit in this morning? Still others may seem insignificant in themselves, but when done over time, and added together, their significance can greatly increase in our life. Questions like, what am I going to eat for lunch today? Or am I going to exercise this afternoon? My wife can answer those for me without hesitation. Something unhealthy and absolutely no way. But every day we answer a number of questions, whether we realize it or not. Just this morning, you have already answered numerous questions. What time will I get up? Will I eat breakfast? Will I go to church? Where will I park? Will I attend a life group? Whether you realize it or not, you have already answered each of these questions and more this morning. When we consider life's decisions and the many questions that require an answer, verbalizing a question can help us to be much more intentional in our response. See, when you say it out loud or when you say it to yourself in your mind, you are much more conscious of what you are choosing. In our text today, Jesus will ask his disciples several questions of faith. These questions will reveal truths about Jesus, but they'll also reveal where the disciples are on their spiritual journey. These questions will be an important opportunity for reflection, rumination, and response. The entire region is already wrestling with the questions that Jesus is going to ask. 
but he's going to vocalize them. Jesus intentionally asks these questions because their answers matter. These questions are not only important for the disciples in the moment, but will have a lasting impact on the future as well. In the same way, these questions are not only important for us today, but for our lives as a whole. So if you will, read along with me Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. As we walk through this passage this morning, there are three questions about Jesus, three questions of faith that I want you to consider. And the first is this, who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? In verse 13, Jesus opens the conversation by doing what he so often does with his disciples. He asks them a question. Jesus uses questions as a teaching tool a lot. He uses them to draw out of his audience what he already knows. He wants them, and by extension us, to think more critically. And here, his questions will lead to a greater understanding of who he is. So Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' favorite descriptor for himself. It is used 88 times in the New Testament to refer to him. Now in our day, Christians tend to hear Son of Man and think of it as a title. But in those days, it didn't have a clear definition. It didn't come with the same expectations or misconceptions like titles of Messiah or Son of David. For this reason, Jesus will lean into it and pour his own meaning into the phrase. Now, in one sense, Son of Man simply means human. It's just a roundabout way of saying it. 
God refers to the prophet Ezekiel as son of man numerous times in the Old Testament. Each time, he's simply calling Ezekiel human. So the son of man is a human being. He is flesh and blood. But Jesus takes us a step further because he changes the article. See, everywhere else in Scripture, the phrase is, a son of man. But Jesus says, the son of man. Jesus moves from the collective to the singular. One of my seminary professors one time completely ruined a common English phrase for me. And so I hope I can do the same for you this morning. One of a kind. We use it all the time to say that something is special. But if you really think about it, that's not what we're saying at all. A kind is just a type. It's just a category. So when you say you're one of a kind, what you're really saying is you're one among many. What you really mean to say is you are the only one of a kind. There is no one like you. Jesus is the only one of a kind. Where we are a son of man, Jesus is the son of man. So what Jesus is asking is, who do people say that I am? And the answer is quite interesting. The disciples list off a number of different opinions. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Now, except for Elijah, everyone else in this list has a recorded death. So for Jesus to be any one of these, there would have to be a resurrection, which is a remarkable thought in itself. But besides that, there's something else. To be included in this list, to be among these prophets, one must be highly thought of. These men were revered. They were the upper echelon, the cream of the crop. The disciples have noticed that the people think highly of Jesus. But reverence falls short of what Jesus is seeking. Because while Jesus is a prophet, he is also so much more. While the Son of Man is a human being, he is also so much more. As Jesus takes the collective A, Son of Man, and he moves it to the distinct and individual, the Son of Man. He does the same with his questions. He moves from asking about the collective others to a more pointed inquiry.
Which leads us to our second question this morning. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? In verse 15, Jesus turns the focus to his disciples. And he asks them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Peter proclaims that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of his people. The one whom the prophets of old had been pointing to all along. He's the one that God had promised from the very beginning. In those days, though, the title Messiah came with a lot of many false expectations and misconceptions. Whether politically, militarily, or theologically, there were many ideas about the Messiah that Jesus would prove wrong. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He didn't come to lead a civil revolt against human oppressors. But he did come to overthrow the power of sin and death. He did win a victory over spiritual forces. He didn't come to save a nation of one race. He came to save the races, to build a nation. So Peter speaks better than he understands in this moment. See, not only does he not fully understand what kind of Messiah Jesus will be, he doesn't just say that Jesus is the Messiah. He also calls him the Son of the living God. Where Jesus' title of Son of Man emphasizes his humanity, Peter is going to take that and couple it with another title that is equally true. Jesus is the Son of God. He is both divine and human. He is both fully God and fully Man. The Bible says that the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Jesus stepped off of his throne and he wrapped himself in human flesh so that he could be with us. He became one of us so that he could walk with us and so that he could die for us. Don't fall into the trap that so many others do about Jesus. The same trap that the crowd fell into. The crowd was ready to accept Jesus as a prophet. They were even ready to accept him as the Messiah and King that they had created in their minds. 
but they couldn't accept him for who he fully was. They were not able to accept him in his fullness. They could not accept every part of who he was and is. And we face the same temptation today. Don't try to separate Jesus' divinity from his humanity. Don't try to separate Jesus' teachings from his miracles. Don't try to separate Jesus' morality from his identity. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tom preached a message on freedom, and I I sat in the, the pew and I smiled as he began to reference one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors. But my smile quickly turned to stunned disbelief as he, wor- as he read word for word a quote that I had planned to use today. <laughs> However, because I believe that it is just as relevant today as it was then, and I believe that repetition is needed for recollection, allow me to share with you a quote from the great theologian C.S. Lewis and what he once wrote about the identity of Jesus. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Others around Jesus were enamored with his teaching. They were in awe of his miracles. They knew there was something special about him. But they couldn't make the leap that the disciples do. They couldn't reach the conclusion that Peter does. They saw Jesus as an incredible man. But that was it. Just a man. What about you? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is?
That is the most important question of your life. Your answer to that question is the most important response that you will ever give. Is he God or is he not? Those are your only two options. You either completely accept him or completely reject him. You do not get to pick the parts you like and discard the parts that you don't. The Jesus that grants mercy is the same Jesus who demands justice. The Jesus who forgives the sins of the paralytic is the same Jesus who violently overthrows tables in the temple. The same Jesus who calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. The Jesus who forgives the woman caught in adultery is the same Jesus who then says, go and sin no more. The same Jesus who gets on his knees and he wipes the dirt and grime off of the feet of the disciples is the same Jesus who reigns now and forever as king. That Jesus is the same Jesus who, when the woman at the well mentions the Messiah, he responds with, I who speak to you am he. Though he doesn't do it in the way that many would have demanded, Jesus never denies who he is. He openly proclaims to be the Son of God. He says that he and the Father are one. You cannot ignore Jesus' own claims about himself. So who do you say that Jesus is? Will you join Peter and the disciples? Will you join me and so many others in proclaiming that he is the Messiah, the Son of God? the rightful King and our Redeemer and friend? Will you accept that He is the path to forgiveness? That through Him you can be reconciled back to God? Do you believe that there is eternal life in His name? How you answer that will determine how you answer our third question this morning, which is this. What will you do about it? What will you do about it? In verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter's answer. He tells him that he is blessed because the Father has revealed that to him. But then in verse 18, he adds something else. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now there have been many disagreements about this verse in church history. But when Jesus says, 
on this rock. He doesn't mean Peter the man. He means Peter's confession. What Peter has just said about Jesus is what he will build his church on. The foundation of the church is rooted in the truth of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. The church is not built on the strength of men, but on the strength of God's Word, on who He has revealed Himself to be. And by that, it is able to overcome the gates of Hades. Now, when we hear the gates of Hades, we may be tempted to develop the wrong picture in our minds. On one hand, we may be tempted to view it as a spiritual battle against demons. That some translations even say the gates of hell. But this isn't really what Jesus is saying here. The gates of Hades is a Jewish idiom that means death or the realm of death. So here in this passage, it is death that stands opposed to the church. Another temptation might be to view this as a struggle, as an attack on the church. To view it as the church fighting for survival. But that isn't quite it either. You see, gates are defensive structures. They're part of the wall around a city. They are designed to keep people out and protect the people inside. Or, to put it another way, they are designed to keep people in as captives on the inside. Jesus is painting a picture of perseverance for the church, but not in the way that we often think. In this picture, it is not the church that is on the defensive. The church is not stationary. The church is on the move. The church is on the offensive. We do not cower in the corner and wait for the storm to pass. We do not endure by merely holding on for dear life. Rather, our endurance is found in the long march to freedom. We persevere by accomplishing the mission that God has called us to. Our mission is not simply to withstand an attack. We are called to go on the offensive. Now, it is Jesus who fights for us. It is his victory. We do not claim any advance as the result of our effort or abilities. But Jesus has called us to cooperate with him. We have a part to play. 
In Exodus 14, the nation of Israel finds themselves in a very difficult spot. After all of the plagues, Pharaoh has finally allowed them to leave Egypt. But as soon as they're gone, Pharaoh has a change of heart. He changes his mind, and so he gathers up his army, and he goes after them. And he pursues the Israelites in the wilderness, and he catches up to them at the Red Sea. He corners them against the sea, and Israel finds itself trapped. But Moses tells the people this, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Israel did not fight Egypt on the battlefield. The Lord took care of that. But Israel still had to act. God split the Red Sea, but the people still had to walk through it. They had to trust that God would hold the walls of water on either side. They had to trust on the truth of God's word. They had to have faith that he would do what he said he would do. And they had to act on it. Jesus says that he will build his church. He is active in its construction. He is the one that puts it all together. But the rock that he says it will be built on is Peter's confession. What Peter says about Jesus is the material that he will use in his master plan. The church grows through our confession of Jesus as Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We have to be vocal about who he is. Our faith is personal. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? It is a question that must be individually answered. But while our faith is personal, it is not private. To know Jesus is to share Jesus. In sharing the good news of who Jesus is, we push against the gates of Hades. The realm of death cannot withstand the march of God's word. As the church grows, as the kingdom of God expands, the territory of death recedes. We push against the gates of Hades because we know they will give way. That death cannot prevail against the truth of the gospel but we also know that they will not surrender to our strength, but rather to the strength of the one who's inside us. So form up. 
Put on the full armor of God. Join the ranks and march to victory. The end is already assured. So take your place and do your part. You have your orders. It's time to carry them out. Confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior and share him with those who are still behind the gates. With those who are destined for death because they do not know Christ, their Redeemer. How you answer our questions of faith this morning will determine how you live your life and how you will spend eternity. These questions are not only significant for today, but for the future as well. How you answer them each day will shape your life over time. Their significance never dwindles. Who is the Son of Man? He is the promised Messiah. God's promised Redeemer to save His people. Who is Jesus to you? Only you can answer that question. Do you today confess that he is both Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? And if you do, what then will you do about it? Will you pray with me? Father, our lives are full of questions. But today, Lord, help us to find the answers in you. Open our eyes to the truth of who you are. Reveal to us the mystery of the gospel. That God became man. Help us to hold on to this amazing truth that by it we are reconciled back to you. That through it we can have a relationship with you. And that from it death has lost its power. As you indwell us with your spirit so propel us to walk in your victory, to share in your glory, to push against the gates of Hades that we might witness the awe-inspiring wonder of your power. For your namesake, for your glory, and your honor, we ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.